0: welcome to another episode of strata shorts my name is thomas schreiber and i'm director of marketing here at strata strata is a full service emr for physical therapy and occupational therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99 percent reimbursement rate on today's episode i'm joined by paul singh the ceo of strata and we'll be diving into insurance companies wrongfully denying claims, the biggest mistakes you can make when marketing your clinic, and why you should be weary of consultants in this industry. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode.
1: There's always going to be this like tension between medical professionals and insurance payers. Like just plain and simple, there's always going to be a tension there because, you know, just for simplicity's sake, the medical practice wants to get paid everything they're owed for everything they think they should have done for that patient. And on the other side, the payer, they've got to be careful here because if you're not, there's a slippery slope of, you know, potential challenges where somebody accidentally throws in an extra code or two or you know, all that stuff. And so there's this healthy, I think healthy tension between the two sides. It's true of any relationship in business. Where it gets a little bit tricky, though, is where it potentially crosses the line a little bit. And what I mean by that is, is I think we would all agree that if a practitioner or somebody tried to fraudulently charge extra codes or extra time for a given procedure, I think we can all agree that would be bad and that insurance payers shouldn't have to pay that. I think we can all universally agree on that. But on the flip side, that's where this thing gets a little bit muddy because just how many hoops are we making people jump through just to get paid? In other words, the really simple summary or way to talk about this is, is that like what I think started out as really good intentions, meaning, hey, payers, want a little bit more information just to make sure that like the doctors or the practitioners aren't screwing things up accidentally. That started from a a place of good heart, goodness, all that. But over the years, I think the slope has gotten slippier and slipperier. And where we've ended up now, you know, in 2023 or whatever, is sort of this really adversarial relationship. We went from like, I think a very healthy tension a couple of years ago to something that feels very adversarial right now where medical practices don't fully feel, at least in the open public, they don't fully feel that they're getting paid everything they're owed and they're not being forced to jump through you know, extra hoops. And on the other side, like, they don't have enough data to prove it. So if you think about this now, in any individual medical practice, it doesn't matter how big you are. You could have 25 practice locations in the country. You could have two. You could have 200. At the end of the day, you're still one medical practice group and you only know what you see with the data stream between you and the payer. And that's where things get really interesting for us. We're in the billing stream for thousands of these practitioners, you know, and lots of these practices all over the world or sorry, all over the United States. And the thing is is what can look a little weird to any one practice or one practice group at our level can start to look a little bit funnier when you start to see weird behavior coming back from the APIs to the payers. So look, I admit I'm dancing around this topic because the 7,000 pound gorilla in the room is the payers. I totally wanna just address that. But the fact of the matter is, is that when you're an individual practice, you can't really fight something when you don't really know the full data set. Like, was this really an accident? Were all my claims yesterday rejected because it was an accident? Maybe, probably. But from our perspective, things get a little bit more tricky when we start to see an individual payer kick back lots of stuff across lots of different payers. Maybe it's, and look, it could be a clearinghouse problem. It could be a problem at the payer. But, you know, I know this all sounds very like conspiratorial or whatever. And, you know, if you were to look at any one of these individual issues, it's easy to kind of look the other way and say, yep, human error, good intentions, all good. But- you know, in our business, when you start to see lots of this stuff kind of happening, you just start to look at a different fact pattern and things just start to look a little bit different.
0: Could you give an example of what it means to something looks funny?
1: One of the things that's important, you know, subtle, but really important about us is, is that we are the EMR and the RCM component, meaning, you know, we're full stack. So we, you know, have all the notes from the visit that the patient had with the doctor and all that. And so, Clean claim rate is a really important metric that we look at. And so, you know, just speaking at a high level, 50,000 foot overview, if we believe the claim coming in from the EMR side is clean, then that should mean that when we push it into the RCM portion of our business flow, that it should get accepted appropriately by the insurance payer, paid out, that sort of stuff. So, in a perfect world, you use our EMR, everything's clean, everybody gets paid, not a big deal. Where it starts to get a little bit weird is where our clean claim rate might still be high, but the payer rejects some of those claims inconsistently. So it's hard to explain a a technical issue like on a 20-second clip here, I guess, but that's where it gets really weird where all of a sudden it's like, It's not like all of their claims got pushed back. It's like one out of every four, one out of every two, one out of every 87. And again, when you're one payer, I'm sorry, when you're one practitioner, and let's say you pushed in manually 50 claims yesterday, let's just say that's what you did. You know, if you've got an in-house billing team, they're probably already stretched really thin thinking about tomorrow's patients, last week's rejections, all that. It's hard to actually step back and say, wait, is there a pattern here? In our case, because we're tech-enabled and we like to use a lot of technology all throughout the business, we can start to see interesting patterns where, you know, it's like, why did all these disparate claims from a lot of different medical practices get denied or rejected? And, oh, wait a second, that's interesting. They're coming from one payer or maybe even one clearinghouse. And more often than not, sometimes you'll contact their support team privately and say, hey, is something going on? And they don't know. And that's where it gets a little bit strange because that's not okay with your credit card. Like you can't call your credit card or even a credit bureau and say, why did this get on my credit? Or why did that happen? Like there's laws against that, but it's just not the same with this healthcare industry. And that's the problem. You know, I I think that the problem is not that, like, I guess just to be really direct here. Look, in a perfect world, every claim should get paid to a doctor that does everything the way they were supposed to do it. As long as they follow the rules, they should get paid 100%. At the same time, I feel for the payers. If they're not careful, a lot of fraudulent claims can kind of slip through, you know, and an extra $20 here and there adds up at scale when you're talking about millions and tens of millions of patients. So I get where they're coming from. But the fundamental problem we're dealing with here is, is I think what started out as good intentions has turned into something that, actually hurts the average medical practice. It's kind of like when you go to the airport, it's like, you know, and hopefully I don't get, you know, bring out the wrong crowd here. But like, it's like when you go to the airport, like because of one security incident, everybody has to take their shoes off now, which at face value, I get it. But now we're talking about the reality that millions of people walk through the airport every day and are inconvenienced by this because of one issue. So I'm not saying we should lower the standard of anti-fraud measurements or anti-terrorism, all that stuff. What I am saying is that you can't take a heavy hand to this. We've had practices that, you know, they've been around for 10, 20 years sometimes and they want to sell. And, you know, I'll be on some of those calls like, hey, look, we get it. Just what's going on. And I, I still distinctly remember one doctor saying, look, 20 years ago, I would just fill out the form, fax it into the payer, look the other way, and everything was fine. I'd get paid. And today, it's just not that anymore. And in his words, he said something like, and I'm like 65 now. I'm just not playing the game anymore. I'm done.
0: And from your perspective, Paul, what's the, in the last 10, 15 years, maybe even longer than that, why why has the insurance company, you think, made it so much more difficult because of the potential of fraudulent claims? Or is it deeper than that?
1: I mean, okay, so this is a really nuanced question. I think that, you know, if we're just armchair quarterbacking right here on this on this show, then it's easy to point the finger at the payer and say, oh, look at those idiots. They just, they screwed it up royally and stuff like that. But if you take the optimistic view on this, the reality is, is that the payers are probably all good people that all have good intentions that genuinely care about healthcare. And so let's just kind of play that out for a minute. If you believe that they are good people, then what's happened here is, is, you know, what started out as good intent, like, Hey, let's figure out how to make sure every claim is fully documented so that the patient understands what we paid for and all that, like, right. But then where it got really slippery is where those requirements or those hoops that the practitioner had to jump through to like get paid, got really burdensome. Like, here's another, I'm not trying to skirt your question, but the best way for me to kind of talk about this is, is like, look, when you download a government form, as an example, if you're, let's just say you go download a government form, an IRS 1040, any document that a citizen would download from a government agency, right there, typically on the first page, I don't know what the technical term for it is, but there's a version number of what that document is. And at the, somewhere on that page, it also says expected completion time. Because a long time ago, for better or for worse, you know, lawmakers realized that you can't unreasonably burden somebody. Like, you know, it's one thing to ask them to fill out a form that might take 10 minutes each time. It's another thing to make them fill out a form that could potentially take three days, four days, five days. And I think that that's where we're going to end up with this like payer-payee relationship in the long term is for better or for worse. I think there's going to be regulatory intervention at some point where we recognize at the government level, that all of this stuff that started out as good intention has now turned into something that burdens the average medical practice that is just trying to do the right thing and make a living while they're doing it. So it's complex. That's the problem here.
0: Yeah. And it's causing guys like that that customer you were talking to or that practice you were talking to to say, you know, it's deterring people to either shut down their practice or not even start the practice because it's or become totally cash based. And that's why I think we see so much of the popularity now between people pushing for owners to be purely cash based. But as we've talked about before.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that healthcare technology has not progressed at the same rate as consumer technology or business technology is fundamentally the barriers that exist. You know, So for example, if you and I want to start a, I don't know, coaching business or sell coffee, you know, 20 years ago, you had to have a relationship with a local bank and personally guarantee something. And then maybe you'd get that like credit card swipey thing, you know, like I had to do with my first business. But today it's a lot easier. You can just sign up for Stripe or Authorize.net or Square or whatever, and you can collect money tomorrow. That doesn't exist with healthcare, at least at the RCM side of the business. And um, that's a big barrier that stops a lot of new players. And that's the point I'm kind of getting at is is that if we really want to make a better experience for patients, for doctors, for even for payers, then somewhere in there, we have to make the, what I would call sort of the, the business stack easier. It should be not easy, but it should be easier to enter in and become a new doctor. It should be easier to at least understand how to get paid and what the processes are and and things like that. And I think that's where we come in. Like, I I don't want to think that I'm naive enough to believe we can change a whole industry. I don't want to be that naive. But I think that any large-scale industry change, if we look at consumer tech and business tech, always starts with transparency. So that's a big part of our strategy as we go into the, the second half of 2023 is, Let's just start exposing the data. Let's expose all the aggregate data that we have at the payer level, the practice level, the code level. Let's just put it all out there and let the audience decide what they want to do with it. Look, if you're listening to anything like this content, you're probably in those private Facebook groups where you know that people are asking every day and sometimes anonymously asking, hey, how much should I get paid for this CPT code? Or they're asking anonymously because they're scared of the repercussions here. They're asking anonymously, hey, uh, you know, why did this get denied? Or why do you think that got denied or whatever? Like they're so scared of the big incumbent players about potentially, you know, pissing off the hand that feeds them. And that tells you a lot about what that, you know, what I sort of referred to earlier is what started out as like a healthy tension seems like it might have now become accidentally adversarial. You know, there are certain trade groups that I probably don't want to name here, but, you know, if you're listening, you know who I'm talking about. There are certain industry trade groups that everybody's a a member of, but those same trade groups will block you or shut down any emails or discussions on their bulletin boards about how much you're getting paid or how to renegotiate a payer contract. Like, that's where this thing kind of starts to smell a little fishy to me, is when that sort of open discussion is starting to gets so scary that people won't put their name on it. And even more so when you can't even have that discussion because some vague reason. (laughs) That's the issue for me. When you're in this business for even just a few, like it doesn't matter how long you've been in the healthcare world, what you learn very, very quickly is, is that the people that choose to operate in this environment genuinely care about making patients' lives better, right? So in other words it doesn't matter whether you talk to a doctor or a nurse practitioner or a pt ot whatever like for them to go through all that schooling potentially get into all that debt and then finally step into this world where they may not even get paid for the full day you learn very quickly that the people here start from this position of i'm just here to help patients and i hope i can make a living from it that's the tragedy of the whole thing by the way now is that you have all these good people that are running practices large and small throughout the country And then forced to play this cat and mouse game with this whole RCM component of their business. And somewhere between the clearinghouses, the payers, and the hand of the market or something, I don't know, everything gets really hard. And I think that's sort of the tragedy of the whole thing. And then, so I would say like, you know, classic power law distribution here, let's call it 90% of these folks just... Fight through it. And they spend the next 20, 30, 40 years of their career just writing off money because at some point they kind of have to just keep moving and make ends meet and go forward. The next 9% of them, and these are just made up numbers, just power law distribution. So if 90% of them sort of just deal with it because that's all they could do, the next 9% of people, you know, start to open up one or two or just, they they open up multiple practices and using their own additional volume when they get to a certain scale, maybe, just maybe, they're able to spot places where they may not have been getting paid enough or, or that sort of thing. Like, as they get bigger, they have more money and revenue to be able to support a better, you know, billing function, all that stuff. And then you have like that top last, you know, 1%. And these are the people that realize that there is this asymmetry of information and they also realize that they can't have these conversations in public. They can't just go on a private Facebook group or, you know, send an email out on the industry trade, uh, trade industry uh, uh, organization email list because it's going to get squashed. And so they organize these informal dinners and golf outings and uh, lunches where, you know, five, 10, 50 practice owners get together once a month. And I I can point at a couple different examples of it that that are happening across our customer base where that's what they talk about at a dinner table is, hey, what are you getting paid for this code? Okay, write that down. Hey, how'd you renegotiate that payer contract? What were the numbers that they gave you? Okay, they write that down. And that's the thing. So what's happening here is is like, just like with any inefficient market, like like what we're talking about here is, is what's called an asymmetry of information. The payers know what they're paying to each of the practitioners across the country, but each practitioner across the country really only knows what they are getting paid themselves. And that asymmetry, if you look at any other industry, any other industry, you know, uh, consumer, B2B, anything else, what happens is, is that technology comes in and it always starts with a, a transparency layer where somebody within the flow says... Hey, look, here's the aggregate data. Do with it what you will, but we're just trying to level that asymmetric playing field. And that's kind of where we're at now. And that's that's kind of what the next couple months for Strata is going to be is building out these public dashboards that whether you're a client of ours or not, you can reference and use at any time. Cause I genuinely, genuinely I don't care whether you use us or not. And I don't mean that in any negative way. I just want you to get paid. So I guess the summary of all that and the answer to your question specifically now that I've said that is is that most people never get beyond the day-to-day struggle of running their practice to be able to even think about how to successfully renegotiate a payer contract. And then if you make it out of that and let's whatever you have to do either multiple practices or you happen to know other practice owners, what's happening today is they just self-organize typically around private Zoom calls or dinners. And they talk about it. And even then, it's really limited to who's around you.
0: Yeah, the people at the table and, and their little view of their data and their practices. That's exactly
1: right. Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's a great point about the, in order for the industry to evolve the transparency, but then also the business stack, like how many tools and, and apps and things have made it extremely, you know, much, much easier to start a business on the consumer side of things. Yeah. Like you said, Square, Stripe. But any additional tools, yeah. you know, Typeform, or whatever.
1: But I'll just say that, like, I'm not proposing that we lower the barrier to entry from a clinical or licensing standpoint at all. Like, I want my pediatrician to have passed every standard so that I know that the care that my kids are getting is great, right? So, like, I think some forms of that are really good and important, But then there's other parts of friction that I think are detrimental. And that's what I'm really referring to is that the RCM component of running a practice or being a medical practitioner in this country is, I think, unnecessarily hard. And it doesn't matter what part of the transaction you're in. If you're a patient, a practitioner, or even a payer, if you even, you know, care a tiny bit about making, you know, healthcare better objectively in this country... I think you could make a huge positive impact if we could make the RCM side easier, smoother.
0: And even adding in more education when PTs, OTs, doctors are going through their education. I mean, they're such limited from what I understand from Emily and and others is there's, they learn about what a CPT code is, the eight minute rule, and that's about it, at least on the OT side. And that's where there is a level of There needs to be a little bit more business acumen and business resources around even just understanding the game that is being played with your if you never become an owner, even if you never become an owner, just understanding here's what your owner of the clinic that you're going to be at is fighting on their end.
1: Yeah, first of all, I do think that the entire industry would be better off if we baked more billing knowledge directly into studying portion of becoming a practitioner of becoming a doctor or, you know, whatever it is you're going to become. I do agree with that statement. But I think that, you know, it's also safe to say that, like, I know that we at Strata can't, like, make some university or school add that in, right? Like, it would be nice and I would love that. But I think that I could see a day in the future where, you know, maybe we offer some sort of strata certified training and and you know continuing credits and stuff like that. Like to put it another way, you know, our EMR does all that. Like our because our EMR is is billing aware, we can kind of keep you out of trouble while you're there with the patient. So that's fine. That's a lot of clients love that. But I think it would be wise at some point for us to go even one step further and just train people, even if they don't use our platform. Because again, we genuinely I mean, look, as a capitalist, I want you to use my product, but the reality is I genuinely don't care. I think as long as you get paid, I'm happy. And if you want to go through a bunch of training that we give you for free or however we want to do it, and you get a better clean claim rate, because you now know you always got to get an authorization. You now know more about like the payers and, you know, what's allowed with that code, what's not allowed with that code. If you understand all that, you're going to get paid. Like, that's great. And I could see a day where there's like a Strata certified thing that you can put on your LinkedIn just to show your potential employer in the future that whether or not you use Strata, you understand billing. I could absolutely see that in the future.
0: Yeah. So maybe from your standpoint, when you've talked to our past customers, what are those challenges on the marketing side for OTPT businesses that you're seeing?
1: I'll probably lose some friends here, but let's just do it. I think most consultants and middlemen suck. And what I mean by that is, is that there are always in any industry, there's always like a couple consultants and middlemen and and platforms that genuinely want to do the right thing and have the capacity to do the right thing. But the vast majority of them, I think, probably started with good intentions, but just kind of charge a lot for returning and return nothing. So let's just use an example of that. So let's talk about marketing as a... PT practice or OT or speech practice or, or frankly, any medical practice, (laughs) you know, I don't know why I'm like hesitating here, but the reality is that I talk to a bunch of our clients all the time. And when I ask about like what consultant they've tried or what platform they've used in the, in the past for marketing or whatever, I look at it and I'm like, Oh, wow. Those things that you just paid for would never stand a chance in the consumer or B2B world. Like that's where I'm getting at. Like if I haven't totally turned anybody off by listening to this or whatever so far, I would just say that like by healthcare standards, I'm sure everything's fine. All these consultants and middlemen and marketing platforms are great. But if you could actually look for just a minute at the comparables in the B2B world, in the consumer world, the vast majority of marketing platforms and consultants here in this industry are ridiculous. And I know that's not going to win me any friends, but again, I genuinely care about making sure that practices, you know, get what they paid for. And so, I, you know, I, I think the reality is, is that I think there's a couple of things that we could do and I'm hesitating because I don't want to like totally give away the playbook before I have tested it or we've tested it or whatever. But I think that, you know, if you look at sort of the way we think about customer acquisition, demand generation, you know, awareness, market awareness, brand, all that stuff, we're pulling directly from the consumer and B2B playbooks. I mean, that's my background, your background, and, and frankly, everybody on the engineering team's background. That's what I've been sort of recruiting is if you're not on the RCM team, I don't want any healthcare experience. And so let me just be really blunt. I think the reality is, is that most practices in this country, medical practices in this country should be able to dominate their local pay-per-click advertising for probably no more than $1,000 or $2,000 a month. Tops, total, all in. I think a budget like a thousand or two thousand bucks a month on some combination of Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, whatever, pick your platform. I think a thousand or two thousand bucks tops is really what you need to dominate the local environment. Cause you don't have the problem that I have. Like running Strata, we need to build awareness across the country. So our numbers are a little bit different, but the idea is the same, right? And so that right there, what I just said in terms of numbers that's orders of magnitude cheaper than what a lot of these consultants will have you believe. You know, they'll they'll you know, I don't want to give prices because then you'll know who I'm talking about. But the point is though is that like, you know, the reality is is that medical practices from an advertising and marketing standpoint are playing a hyper local game. In other words, it's really about dominating the impression share within a 10, 20, 30 mile radius of your practice, not going further than that. And um I've looked at the pay-per-click accounts for a couple of the practices that you know join us. And immediately I can tell problems where I'm like, stop that, turn that off, don't do that, like just kill it. Where they're charging sometimes three, five, ten thousand dollars a practice location and then diverting like maybe 10% of that payment to the paid platform. So I know this is a bunch of like industry jargon or whatever, but the reality is, or the summary is most. From a market, like when we think about the marketing layer of medical practices, most consultants and platforms suck. And we wouldn't accept that sort of behavior in any other market, consumer, B2B, whatever, right? Like, that's the reality. If you're still with me, I would say that like, if you're, let's just say you're listening to this, you run a practice and you're paying a consultant right now. I would just ask them straight up, what's my CAC per new patient? I'll explain what that means, but just ask that question in that way and see what happens. Because if they don't immediately respond with something other than like, you should probably be worried. So just to be clear, CAC, cost of customer acquisition, right? So like in the consumer world, I know depending on the industry that I might be paying $30 per new customer, or I might be paying $300 per new customer. That is my CAC. And if I know what my CAC is, I can adjust my marketing budget accordingly. And if the person running my marketing doesn't understand CAC, then I have serious concerns about who's running my marketing and my pay-per-click. So for practice owners, you don't have to know enough to do the work, right? And this is here's, here's common advice for almost anything you're going to do. You don't have to know enough to do the work yourself, but you do need to know enough to make sure you can identify who's blowing smoke at you. Because I do believe fundamentally the vast majority of consultants and middlemen in the healthcare industry are you know the 80 or 90 percent that aren't worth the money
0: thanks for listening to another strata shorts episode if you'd like to learn more about strata and achieving a 99.99 percent reimbursement rate for your ot or pt practice head over to stradapt.com or email us at hello at